Please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the Apostle John's record of the gospel of Christ in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. John 20 and towards the end of the chapter in verse number 24 will be our text this morning. The title of the message this morning is, is Jesus Thomas Peace. Jesus Thomas Peace. Verse 24 in John 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word among his people this morning. Would you pray together with me? Father, we are among those who have not seen, but we have received the blessing. Amen. We have received the blessing, Lord. We have we have been able to receive Christ even though we have not placed our hand on his side or in his hands. We have no less of Christ than the apostles had. Blessed be your name for imparting to us by means of faith, by means of your grace, the fullness of Christ in our salvation, the knowledge of Christ that is on par with even that which was known by the disciples in this. Father, as we draw close to you and your son, Christ, during this time in the word, show us afresh the wounds and scars of Christ. Let us no longer be doubters. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in this series of In Their Shoes, we have we have learned that Jesus would be Peter's rock. We've learned that Jesus would be James' thunder. And we learned also that Jesus would be John's love, Andrew's bringer, Philip's revelation, and Nathaniel's hope last week by Pastor Golden. But this morning, we're going to be discovering again that Jesus is Thomas Peace. Thomas Peace. You can't be human and not doubt. Even the most confident people experience doubt. There are many types of doubt that are common in, in our experience. In my studies for this message this morning, I came across one pastor's or theologian, D.A. Carson's thoughts about the types of doubts that are common to people. Maybe some of these would resonate with you. 
There is one kind of doubt. It's called moral freedom, the doubt of moral freedom. This kind of doubt is the doubt of the moral slide of one's behaviors. The person has made a decision that in order to do what they want and feel what they want, they will doubt the authority and the demands and the commands of the Lord in their lives and live in the way that they want to. It's called moral freedom because if they can entertain doubt about the claim of God in their lives, then they can live absolutely any way they want to. Does God really have ownership of me? Moral freedom, the doubt of moral freedom. There's also a doubt called the doubt of the philosophical. This kind of doubt claims that if the revelation of, of the grace of God is, is, it ought to be rational. If it cannot be explained and understood rationally, aside from faith, it must be ignored. There's, there's no realm, there's no room for faith in the philosophical doubt. It all has to be human rationalization and reason. The third kind of doubt is a very common form of doubt that, that I like to call a, a doubt of 10,000 little decisions. This type of doubt springs out of the heart of someone who has strayed off the path of truth because of many just seemingly little compromising moral decisions and pressures in life. They are left without any foundation and have forgotten what it is like to be safe in the commandments of the Lord. They gradually, by just slight degree, have parted ways in close fellowship with God so that now they're so far away from God that they don't remember what it is to, to live in the realm of security and confidence in God. It's the doubt of 10,000 little decisions, and now they, they have so much worry and anxiety in their life because they have just gradually moved so far away from God. There's a fourth kind of doubt. It's called the doubt of ignorance. This kind of doubt is, is born just simply out of not knowing. It necessarily isn't a, a moral failure or a sinful type of doubt, but it is the doubt of not knowing. This doubting desires some sort of evidence, some sort of teaching, some sort of truth to dispel it. It it's, has just a whole lot of naivety in it. It doesn't know because it has never known. It doesn't know for sure because it never knew in the first place. And so it's the doubt of ignorance. But there's also doubts that are part of our everyday life as well. And these doubts are caused by weakness and pain. This kind of doubt can be a doubt because of failing senses due to the weakness of the body brought about by some form of suffering. Sometimes, for example, lack of rest, sleeplessness can play tricks on the mind, can make, the, make us question things just psychologically that normally with a, a, a normal day's rest, a normal biorhythm, maybe we wouldn't be so susceptible to the doubts. And so that would be weakness. But you know, suffering and pain also can be a significant player in this form of doubt. When we are in pain, we tend to forget things. Uh, by the way, that's something worthy even writing down. It, when we're in pain, we tend to forget what is true, even important things. Have you ever noticed that in the moment of an emergency, when applying aid and help to someone who has just become injured or is in in a moment of sudden panic because of a traumatic thing that has just happened to them physically, you as a caregiver and an emergency responder need to, to 
move in with truth and help to help them to understand what is true about the situation because of the disorientation and the doubt that it's all of a sudden just overwhelms them. It's it's a doubt by the means of suffering. Sometimes pain makes us forget, whether it's in a sudden traumatic event or a chronic type of pain, as some of our beloved in our congregation experience. Sometimes pain makes us forget. When we talk about Thomas, we can't get away from the label that seems to precede his name and learning of the scriptures. The church uh, throughout time has labeled him to be what? Doubting Thomas, right? We kind of just rolls off our lips. Thomas, oh, doubting Thomas. And that's a really unfortunate moniker. I have a feeling that each of us could be called by that name. Doubting Brad, <laughs> doubting Jennifer, and so on. What if something in our lives became the label for us in church history? How would you like that? Maybe some significant moment in your life where you failed in God's graces or in some way just didn't measure up. And all of a sudden now you become lying Brad or stealing Brad or murderous Brad or whatever. It becomes the moniker in front of your name. How would you like that? Well, God has been gracious and I don't think of any of you in those senses, and I don't think anybody does, but sadly, Thomas came along now through time um, to have this sort of a shameful precedent to his name. There are many who would say that we ought to be willing to give Thomas a a fair treatment by dropping that descriptor. Today, we'll, however, look into the doubt that Thomas experienced in John chapter 20, following the resurrection of the Lord, and we want to see the Christ that Thomas saw. Will you come together with me, with John really here, and see the Christ who Thomas saw? Who was this Christ that removed all doubt from Thomas? And what did Christ do to deliver Thomas that was so powerful that would eliminate doubt from that point forward in Thomas' life? And is that same deliverance available for people like you and I? Well, it was only about 10 days prior that Thomas had witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. And let's remember that it was a crucifixion. Likely, some of the disciples did see Jesus on the cross. We know that John was standing next to Mary. Now, of course, I'm speculating, but but there was a, a cognizance, if not a reality of of all the disciples knowing that Jesus was hanging on that cross and what a terrible, horrifying moment that was to see Jesus being crucified. Now, I know that it, it might not need to be said, but, but in order to enhance the understanding of, of what's going on in Thomas's heart, we need to say some of these things. Jesus wasn't tied to a cross. Sometimes the Romans would tie criminals to the cross as a matter of execution. Jesus was nailed to the cross. A human body, but yet the God-man nailed to these cross beams. It was a horrifying event. When the soldiers wanted to speed along the, the horrific dying process, they would take their spear and they would crush the shins of those who hung on by, for dear life by means of the rising and falling of their determination to gain another breath. Sometimes criminals would, 
would uh, remain on the cross alive as long as they could, even though their body was, was losing blood, as long as they could breathe, they would last for several days on the cross. But we're told in the scriptures that when they came to Jesus, they discovered that his, his torso was no longer rising and gasping for breath. There was no movement. Indeed, these professional executors found Jesus to be dead. And to be sure that there was no life in him, instead of breaking his shins in order to make sure that he could not breathe anymore, they thrust a spear just below his ribcage so that if there had been any life left in him, now there wasn't. He was surely gone now. And so Jesus bore a somewhat unique injury in this. And Thomas, who knew of this execution of Christ, he wanted to know that if Jesus, who had nail prints in his hands and feet, and Jesus, who bore the deadly wound in his side, was walking around, how could this be? Surely the testimony of his broken body on the cross had removed all the possibilities of life, let alone the burial of Christ in the tomb. But Thomas was absent from the first meeting that had happened just prior on the Lord's Day, the week before, according to verse number 24. We don't know why Thomas was absent from the rest of the 10 disciples that were remaining faithful to the Lord in that upper room. And there's not enough information to even speculate about anything being unfaithful in his reputation. But we know that he refuses to accept the disciples' report and even the women's report. Um, and we believe, if we're able to treat this fairly, we believe that his refusal to accept that they had seen the risen Christ, now in some ways, at least from a human perspective, was a reasonable refusal. You see, the disciples themselves had witnessed the risen Christ in their presence. Thomas was merely demanding only that which they had experienced themselves. It was a reasonable rejection of their witness. He wanted to be in the presence of Christ. He was not rejecting what he heard. He just desired to test the truth by evidence. And in similar fashion, his interaction with the risen Christ elicits one of the greatest declarations of the gospel in all the writings. You see, all the other disciples did not believe. They didn't believe the reports, really, until they had seen. So if Thomas was a doubter, then so were the rest of the disciples. And Thomas, it appears, wants to believe. He wants to believe. He wanted to believe, and, and we saw that just before Jesus' crucifixion, when Jesus was in, with the disciples in the upper room in John chapter 14, Jesus had shared that he was soon going to the Father. And Thomas asked, as you remember, how they could know the way to the Father too. How do we get to the Father? Had Thomas not asked about the way, we would have never had such a powerful and succinct gospel message where Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, so Thomas' question elicits in our scriptures one of the most glorious and wonderful passages, does it not? And so now here again, in Thomas' interaction with Jesus, we find that there's another eliciting of powerful statements. So this morning, 
Let's pause and consider something very powerful about the questions, about the questioning heart, about the doubting heart of Thomas. So number one, let's learn about questions and doubt. Number one, when you question God, you're asking the right person. When you question God, you're, you're asking the right person. Thomas was asking the right person. He was asking, really, how can this be? The most common question that we hear when people are suffering and that we often ask ourselves is, why? Why is God allowing this to happen in my life? Why is God allowing this to happen in their life? And let's address that for a moment. That's not what Thomas was doing. Thomas was not asking the why question. He wasn't asking why he had heard the tales of Jesus' resurrection. He was asking how. How can this be true? Because I, I know that he was on the cross. I know that he died. I know that he was buried. How can this be true? And tucked into that question is a common theme of all questions that arise to the ears of God from us. It is the finite, the limited, asking the infinite to become finite in his purposes and his ways. The kernel of rationale in that type of question, when we are questioning God about how these things can be, is really, a, the, the kernel of rationale is really at the central part of the question. God, can you please come to my level so that I can be at your level? God, can you please come to my level so that I can be at your level? God, can you please show me the possibilities rather than the impossibilities? And that's it right there. And here's truths for doubters. Number one, God is God. And I am not. First baseline truth for doubters is we don't let God be God. God is God whether we give him permission or not. God is God. And we are not. Number two, God is holy. God is perfect. He is blameless in all of his ways and in all of his nature, in all of his essence. God is holy. He is set apart from any failure. He is set apart from any diminishing. He is set apart from any sin or imperfection or blame. God is holy. God is God and God is holy. Number three. God is infinite. In all of his ways and purposes, God is infinite. He's without measure. You cannot take out your measuring stick and comprehend God. You cannot, ex cannot explain or come to the end of every reason or every single purpose and way that God has. They are infinite. There are more than a million reasons why God may do something. Fourthly, God is for his people. God is for his people. The fifth truth, the fourth truth for doubters that they must anchor themselves in, and that is that God is for his people. Number five, God opposes sin. God stands in direct opposition. God is at war. God is, God is against sin 
and sinners. And sixthly, God cares more than you can know. Doubters need to rest in these six truths. You see, the revelation that God has already given to us, by means of his word, by the way, gives us principally and truthfully the reason behind every good and every tragic thing that occurs in our lives. At times, God does reveal his purposes to us in the immediacy of our circumstances. But other times, God reserves or rather stores up the glory of the revelation of the end of the story for the time when you and I can be more capable of comprehending the magnitude of wisdom, the magnitude of power, the magnitude of love that was involved in those ordained circumstances. Let me say that again. It is a very long sentence. There are times when God reserves, or rather stores up, the glory of the revelation of the end of the story. He stores up the reasons for the story for a time when you and I can be more capable to comprehend just how large the magnitude, the glory of his power, wisdom, and love in ordaining that circumstance. And listen to this. Perhaps some of this revelation in time to come will be the fuel that will source our awe and worship for all of eternity. The Apostle Paul says, does he not, that, that the sufferings of this life are not worthy of the glory that will be revealed in us in time to come. You say, what will it be like to worship God for all of eternity? I think some of what it will be like is the revelation of the end of the story. And we will be so moved that it will be the purposes and reasons and the power, wisdom, and love of God's glory that will inspire us for trillions of years to come. For Thomas, here in this moment, Jesus was merciful and Jesus showed him his hands, and his side. For Thomas, the revelation was enough. It was enough. He didn't need to touch. He didn't reach out and touch. He demonstrated a faith like yours and mine, didn't he? He demonstrated a faith that was, that was willing to not have to have to touch. He demonstrated a faith that's like ours, that's willing to take the evidence as presented without demanding further levels of revelation are you and I willing to be like Thomas? You see, Thomas' interaction gives us four questions to ask ourselves as professional doubters. And if I was to ask any of you this morning, are you a professional doubter? You might say, well, I mean, I'm kind of uneasy about that title, but yeah, I'm a professional doubter. I'm one of them. I'm a professional doubter. And how do I know I'm a professional doubter? Well, here's four questions that I think might be common, at least some of them, for professional doubters. Do these ring true in your life? Number one. Who do we think we are that we would stand in judgment of God and his ways? Do we find ourselves questioning the motives of God? Do we find ourselves questioning the wisdom of God? Do we, do we find ourselves questioning the, the impossibilities or the power, the limitations of the power of God? Then we're, we qualify as a professional doubter. Number two, 
Why do we not put more trust in the revelation of God and his word than in our own natural senses? Remember, we were talking about one of the reasons for doubt sometimes is the, the sensibility, the sensitivity of our, of our human experience, our physical experience, interacting with this material world. Often we place more trust in what we feel than what's true. Really, that's the summation of our culture and our generation right now. No matter what topic it is, what issue it is in our society today, many of our societal issues are grounded in the fact that we're resting in our physical senses to determine what's true. We're, we're groping around like blind men trying to figure out what this elephant is. One discovering that it has a trunk and so therefore it must be something and another a tail and another a a leg that seems the size of a tree. We're describing things as blind men and going after what we feel rather than what is true. And this is common of professional doubters. God has given us something that is sure, that is timeless, that never changes, and that is his word. And God's word supersedes even the very, by the way, even the very real experience of our bodies and our physical senses, number three. By the way, number two, let me say that again. That is a very controversial statement. That's a statement that we ought not so easily just roll off of. The word of God is true beyond the feelings of our human experience. Ponder on that. Number three, are we being honest in our doubt? Honest. Or are we just lazy? Like, we're not really investigating what we're doubting. We're just lazy. Or maybe we're rebellious. We're not going to check into that. Or maybe we're disobedient. We're, we're just really willing to not be a part of what could be true. But are we being honest? And fourthly, I think like Thomas, do we want to believe? I mean, if, 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 if the answer is revealed to us, Will we trust in God? Do we want to believe? And so these are four questions that we ought to ask ourselves to, to recognize this tendency of being a professional doubter. If professional doubting was an Olympic event, would we all have gold? Gold medals? Yeah, I think we would. So this is a common theme in our lives, and that is, that we stand here as doubters. So when we question God, we're asking the right person. That's really great to hear. But what about the questions that we ask? So number two, when you question God, you need to ask the right questions. Just like if you're on your way to on some trip and you kind of get disoriented and lost on some roads and you want to ask a local. You don't ask a tourist, you ask a local how to get out and get to where you need to go. You need to ask the right person, and you need to ask the right questions. So what kind of questions should doubters ask? Well, how do you know if you're asking the right questions? What informs, what shapes the right kind of questions? First of all, know God's story. Know what he's been up to. Know what, how he has always been, been working in this world and working in redemptive history. Know God's story. Secondly, know his promises. 
Know what he has staked a claim on. Know what he has said he will not move on. Know what he has promised in gracious benefits towards those who trust in him. But know his promises. Know where he has staked his character and claimed his goodness in your life. Then thirdly, know his heart. Know that the heart of God is for his people. The heart of God is for doubters. Know this uh, of all of us. Every doubter in this room, myself included, know God's heart is for doubters as God's heart was for Thomas. The way to know his story and to know his promises and to know his heart is to know his word. Doubters need to be diligent to study the word of God. There's no other revelation that's going to, to remove and help to shed and help to carve off the doubting sides of our hearts. There's no further evidence, there's no further telling of God that's going to destroy and deliver us from doubt. It has to be through the Word of God. Know the Word. Thomas was asking the right question. And Thomas' question elicited yet again one of the most beautiful, hope-filled statements that we hear from Christ in the Scriptures. Jesus responds to Thomas with absolute grace. He responds to Thomas with absolute grace, and he responds with assurance to the one who needs to hear the sound of his promises yet again. And then further, Christ even opens up this response to literally you and I who are sitting here today. Look in verse number 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those at Providence Church who have not seen yet have believed. Jesus makes a promise. He makes a prophecy. He makes a revelation here that you and I can come to verse 29 and say we are blessed by Jesus. Directly, this is not an indirect blessing. This is not an indirect promise. You and I are coming to John, who is the source and the witness of this exact moment. You and I are hearing from John by means of the Holy Spirit this morning. You and I are sitting down with John in his faithful testimony this morning, notwithstanding there's been 2,000 years between the writing of this, this book and, and us today, you and I are hearing from John this morning, and we are hearing from Jesus, that while we remain without sight of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, we are no less blessed than Thomas and the disciples in the upper room on that day. Jesus appears to be saying that we are not missing out on anything, though we do not see the scars on his hands and on his side. And verse number, and that's why this is, this is it elicits another great response. In John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, tell us the way. I am the way. Thomas, unless I see his Hands on his side, I will not believe. Jesus says, see? And then Jesus says, and let me make the blessing bigger than you. And so you and I become partakers of both magnificent 
responses of Christ, assurances and blessings. See, the Calvary marks on Christ are the signs of the true religion. The Calvary marks signify to us that we have placed our faith in someone that is true. Any religion without the nail prints is to be utterly rejected. And others, really, others need to see the nail prints in our lives. They need to see our identity with Jesus Christ so that they can believe too, that they might pass like Thomas and like you and I from being faithless to becoming believers with the same confidence as Thomas, that they too might hear from us. Behold his hands and his side that they can say like us, my Lord and my God. Our lives need to bear witness like Thomas and John bear witness of the risen Christ. You see, doubting for Thomas was a matter of the heart and not the head. Thomas had all the information, the faithful accounts of the, of the women who had visited the tomb, of Peter and John, and of the, the disciples in the upper room who had seen him just one week prior. But he had all the information that had been faithfully transmitted to him, but his grief and his sorrow overwhelmed his mind so that it was a broken heart that led him to unbelief. There are times when grief and sorrow cloud our judgment and even, they even cloud our obedience to believe. And Thomas wanted to believe, but he had an honest doubt. And Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. By the way, this response of Thomas is the shortest witness in the scriptures of who Jesus Christ is. My Lord and my God. A humanist philosopher admitted once, he said, do not fear to doubt if you wish to believe. Do not fear to doubt if you wish to believe. And I think what he was saying is saying this. When you have honest doubt, God answers you truly. Not only are we asking the right person and we need to be asking the right questions, but thirdly, when you question God, you need to be ready to receive peace. You need to be ready to receive peace. There are many doubters in this world, but they're not all like Thomas. They're not honest about their doubting. There are some doubters that are skeptical and their doubting does not cost them any agony uh, per se in the moment. Their, their doubts are not born out of agony or the horror of grief, but, but their doubts are born out of pride and, and really human-centered arrogance. They don't believe because they don't want to believe. They cannot afford to believe, perhaps, because they know what it might cost them to believe. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe as you hear this message this morning, you know that if, if you place your life in the hands of Christ, that it will cost you a certain relationship that isn't right. It may cost you um, a certain activity that you enjoy. It, it, um, this activity might bring you pleasure. Or maybe it's just really scary and overwhelming to think that someone else would be your Lord, that someone else would be your king, that someone else would have a claim on your life. And so you refuse you refuse to place your life in the hands of Christ because you know what it might cost. 
but to those who earnestly, those who doubt with honesty, and maybe that's you here this morning and listening to this message, to those who earnestly yearn to know Christ, he will show himself. He will show himself. To every earnest and seeking soul, the gift of Christ is given. Their doubt, your doubt, can end in faith. The Word of God says it in many ways, in many places, but no better in Jeremiah, than in Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Peter, who also was a doubter, well, he wrote a letter to the church, and one of the first letters he wrote is called First Peter, in First Peter 1, 8 and 9, he says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is, when you place your faith in the unseen Jesus Christ, you receive an outcome. That outcome is none less than the salvation of your souls. And Peter is talking directly to people like you and I. Though we do not see Jesus, we love him. And we have found Jesus to be overwhelmingly wonderful, even to the point of delivering us from our sin and from our guilt. And this believing without seeing is just simply what the Bible calls faith. And let's be clear, faith isn't blind. We're, we're not placing our faith in Jesus Christ as if to say that it's blind faith. And sometimes Christianity is accused of that, that we, that we serve in a blind faith. And many attack Christianity and call it a throng of followers who are only subject to this blind faith. Ours isn't blind, even though we cannot see Jesus in this moment. Our faith is not blind, although we cannot see Jesus. One preacher, John Piper, said this, Faith, as the Bible describes it, is not blind. Unbelief is blind. Faith, he says, sees a reality beyond what eyes can see, a reality that God reveals to us which is more important than what we can see. In fact, more real than what we can see with our physical eyes. He says, glorious, inexpressible joy comes not by seeing Jesus now, but by believing in him now. Those who believe in Jesus in this age are more blessed than those who have seen him like in verse 29, because believing is true seeing, he says. Believing is true sight. And it is faith sight, not eyesight, that results in eternal life. If you're waiting to see Jesus before you believe in him with your own eyes, you will never receive forgiveness and deliverance from your sin, and you will be forever condemned in eternal separation from God. But with the eye of faith, if you behold Jesus and trust that the word of God says is true about him, you will be delivered from your sins. You will receive salvation. It's a greater sight that is the sight of faith than the mere sight of your human eyes. 
Thomas had heard Jesus once say, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see. And those who may see become blind. That is, if you will say that you will not trust in a Jesus you cannot see with your physical eyes, then God says, then you are helpless. You truly, truly, in all reality and in every important way, you're blind. Your unbelief is blindness. Jesus had come to open the eyes of the heart. And in this message, even this morning, if, if you're hearing and debating and doubting about Jesus and whether you truly want to place your trust in him, Jesus has come this morning to open up not your eyes to show yourself himself in the physical presence standing here in the midst of our church this morning, but he's come to open up the eyes of your heart by the hearing of this, of this word this morning. You see, eyesight was never a guarantee that people really saw Jesus. Many saw Jesus, and they still didn't believe. And chances are that if Jesus were to stand here today and for you to physically see him, there's a good chance you may still not believe because many saw Jesus and still did not believe. That was not what needed to happen. And there needed to be an eye of faith in the heart. And Jesus came to open the eyes of the heart. Judas bears witness of this. As Judas beheld and saw Jesus and walked with Jesus some three years, he saw Jesus yet did not believe because his heart had no eyes and he was blind. But we need to know something about this, this faith. The Bible never asks us to believe in something that isn't true. Never. Truth validates faith. Let me explain and illustrate it this way. You know, you can fool yourself and imagine putting your trust into something that will fail you. Let's say you're standing on, in, in a lobby of a building and you need to go upstairs. And so you're standing in front of these elevator doors. But you could put all the faith you want into the elevator that says, elevator broken, use the stairs, but you can stand there in front of these non-working elevator doors. You can stand there until you die, but that elevator is never going to take you up and is never going to take you down. No matter how much faith you have in it, and no matter how long you wait. Your faith doesn't make the difference because the elevator will always remain broken no matter how much faith you exercise in it. But there's a validation on the other side of faith in Jesus Christ. There's a validation in the trustworthiness, or we would say the truthfulness, of the object that receives the faith. If the object is true, then it validates the faith that was placed upon it. It meets it. It validates it. It reveals that the faith has been well placed. Your your confidence, your faith, your trust in this broken down elevator is not a well-placed faith. It's never validated. It may be sincere, but it's never rewarded. I would like to ask you a question. Who or what have you placed your faith in? Now think about that for a moment. Does the object or the person 
Now, you place your faith and validate, reward your faith at all. Think about it. Be honest about where your faith lies this morning. Is there a reciprocation? Is there a reward? What return is there for your faith? Has your faith been made valid? There's a second truth about this, faith being validated, and that is by, by nature, faith necessarily includes an element of trust. It's a self-abandonment unto the objects that it clings to. See, faith isn't valid where faith's object isn't true. Faith isn't valid where faith's object isn't true. Your faith in that elevator does not appear to be valid, but only foolish when the elevator doesn't serve you. And someone said, all honest doubters end where Thomas did. All honest doubters end where Thomas did. On their knees before the master in praise and adoration. If you're an honest doubter this morning and Jesus is being revealed to you, there's a reward awaiting you like there was for Thomas. So how does Jesus answer the doubts that we bring him? He asked two questions. We asked two questions this morning about this text. We asked the first question was, who was this Christ that removed all doubt from Thomas? And the second question we asked is, what did Christ deliver that was so powerful that would forever affect change in Thomas's life that he would no longer be a doubter? And can that be part of our lives? What What is Jesus' deliverance for doubters? Can we claim the same thing? Well, Jesus' answer is peace. And there's three times that Jesus says peace as he approaches his mourning and terrified disciples. As he approached the the disciples, firstly, in the upper room, shortly after his resurrection in verse number 19, Jesus showed them his hands inside, and he said, peace be unto you. But then in verse number 21, he said to them again, now in Th- with, along with Thomas, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then in verse 26, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And Jesus comes to them and he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. This is more than a greeting. This is more than a greeting. This was a demonstration of Christ's deliverance from doubt. Jesus was rebuking Thomas and saying, do not disbelieve, but believe. And that's what he's really saying. That's the message this morning to all of us this morning. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And by believing, you're receiving peace. That's the end. That's the reward. So what did Christ deliver to dispel doubts? What does Christ offer to you and I to dispel doubts? Hey, whether it's moral freedom type of doubt or philosophical type of doubt or the doubt of 10,000 little decisions or the doubt of ignorance or the honest type of doubt or the doubt that happens when we're weak or when we're suffering, what, kind, what is Jesus' deliverance? It's peace. He delivers the blessing of peace through the presence of the Holy Spirit. At the end of World War I, which is one of the bloodiest wars our world has ever faced, there was 10 million troops involved on each side simply just ransacking each other, 
with tanks and howitzers and bombs and guns, machine guns, and just really just plowing through fields yard at a time, mowing down their enemy with bullets. Edward Shalito was a faithful minister of the gospel in England during World War I. And as the war came to a close, he witnessed the return of the few whose bodies were forever broken and also witnessed, of course, the funerals of those who would never walk on this earth again. And as a minister ministering to broken men and broken families, broken bodies, he contemplated and ministered grace and comfort as best as he could into these families being reunited and some who would never be. So he considered the balm that Jesus would have. He compared the scars, not merely that the bodies bore of those brave soldiers, but the inward scars of the heart that would need the peace of God to be applied. And he wrote a poem, and it's called Jesus of the Scars, as he thought about how to minister into this time of his country. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the Scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us, where is thy balm? O Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut thou drawest near, only reveal those hands that side of thine. We know today what wounds are, never fear, show us thy wounds we know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to thy throne. And to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. In the first three centuries of the Christian church, the Christians spoke and faithful men and women preached and testified of the profound irony of Jesus reigning from the cross. It was necessary that Jesus had nails in his hands and feet and a wound on his side. Do you know why it was necessary? Well, there's many reasons, but in this passage, we find that it's necessary that he has these, these scars. It's because he came to save sinners who are doubters. And those doubts would be why he would have the wounds. And so he says, look upon my wounds and never doubt again. Peace be unto you. Let's pray.